Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you. It's been a minute since I've been uh, been up here. We've uh, had a busy, busy fall. Pray for Pastor Ben and Liz. They are uh, the first part of the week. They were dropping their daughter off uh, to a gap year program that she's going to be doing out in Texas. Uh, uh, year-long discipleship uh, ministry for kids that are just out of high school. And then they headed up north and west for their 25th wedding anniversary. So uh, I have done my best not to email him or text him or uh, to call him or anything the last several days. And hopefully they're having a great time and we miss him while he's gone. I'd like for you to pray for me and a team of four pastors that we have going on Tuesday night. I will fly to Atlanta and catch an overnight flight to uh, uh, Joburg, South Africa, Uh, 15-hour flight. I will get there. I leave at 10 o'clock on Tuesday night, and I will get there at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. So that's that's quite a little flight. And uh, then I will spend the night there with our team, and then we will head up to Harare, Zimbabwe. Uh, And then for the next uh, 12 days, we will be working with networks and groups of pastors all over the nation of Zimbabwe. Uh, recently, a report was that Zimbabwe is the number one most miserable country to live in. And that's, so that's one of the reasons I like going there. So I just, uh, I, I don't like to go to easy places, I like to go to hard places. And so, uh, and uh, pray for Rick Wilson, who is, is Rick here? I think, yep, Rick's in the very back. Rick is going to uh, chaperone me uh, while we're there. Uh, Rick is a veteran, veteran missionary, an amazing man, and such a dear friend, a wonderful part of this church. And he agreed to go with me. So he's taking one team and I'm taking the other team. And uh, we're going to be training national leaders. And then we're bringing a a large group of them back to Victoria Falls, uh, where we're going to be doing a ministry and marriage workshop for two days with them. uh, Because many of them just need some encouragement with their family and balance and so forth as their ministry takes off. And just so you'll know, this is possible because if you're giving to Above and Beyond Missions, I just am so excited about what we're doing there. We started this about a year ago. I was there, if you remember, in March where we laid the groundwork and now we've got phase two going on. Uh, Rick has been doing a wonderful job doing some fundraising uh, for us. Uh, Hopefully while we're there, we're going to be able to tell them that we're going to buy them a vehicle to be able to take out into the bush where they will be able to um, uh, take these big, huge boxes of discipleship material out into this, these remote areas. Um, we, the, the church, our church, paid for the meeting places. We'll give them a dinner, uh, not dinner, a lunch. And by the way, lunch, I mean, when we get there, they'll be killing the goats that we're going to have. Uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. They're literally hanging from the trees when we get there. And uh, so we'll, we'll have goats and rice, and all of that was provided by you all. I want you to know that uh, the, the ability to, to go from city to city while we're there is, is provided by you all because of your faithfulness and giving. Uh, the books that are being handed out, thousands and thousands of discipleship books are provided because you all give. And sometimes, you know, there's a disconnect between the moment you place your offering in the offering plate and what really happens to it. We're going to see it up close and personal. So watch, watch our social media pages and we'll post some pictures of some of the things that you're doing because of that. So I'm very excited about that. You pray for uh, Harvest of Souls. You pray for deepening in the Word. Pray for safety as we go. Looking forward to that. So today, we're back into our series on anxiety or joy. I've talked to so many people over the last several weeks with whom this series on anxiety has kind of hit a chord with them. Um, Several have expressed their appreciation for the fact that we're actually talking about this issue publicly because let's be honest, there are some topics that the church tends to avoid because they're messy. Uh, 
uh, and they're difficult. Mental health, anxiety, yeah, that's, that's a messy topic, and, and it's controversial. And, 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 and so dealing with it from a biblical worldview and from a scriptural context um, is, is a little tricky at times, and we've had to navigate and talk through that, and, and, and that's good. You know, there are other topics like sexual topics, gender identity, those kind of things, which are really clear in Scripture, but because of the context of our culture, people are, are very worried whenever you address them, and they get anxious about those kind of things. But, you know, we have to always go back to the Word of God. That's our foundation. So even when the topics make you anxious, remember this, there is security in the settled Word of God. And that's how we want to approach that this morning and, and as we look at the, this passage that we had read just a few moments ago. And, and, and now we're kind of in this situation where, um, you know, you've got pastors talking to you about it. And, and you know, it's been kind of funny because uh, others have been a little surprised at, at the, the fact that, well, first of all, you know, Pastor Ben is getting a degree in counseling and he's studying the psychology, but he's also talking about it from a personal perspective. And uh, how is it that a pastor... You know, the spiritual dudes, how can they relate to this issue personally? And, you know, Pastor Ben's transparent illustrations have kind of helped with that. But now here you got me. I'm up here, right? Pastor Dan, he's been in ministry for over 30 years. He's been a believer for half a century. Man, that makes me sound old. Half a century. I'm a boomer, as my college friends love to remind me constantly. You have decades of experience, which is kind of a polite way of saying you're old as dirt. So how is it that you have experience with anxiety? Pull up a chair, my sweet child. We've got to talk. All right? Because you're about to hear from a veteran who has been engaged in a personal war regarding anxiety for many years. And I'm going to be really honest with you, and this may make you uncomfortable, but again, I said this topic is messy, all right? I really didn't have much anxiety until I became a pastor. I'm going to be honest about that. You know, my first 10 years of my career, I was not a pastor. I was an educator. I taught middle school boys how to diagram sentences. And that was less anxiety than being a pastor, believe it or not. I was a school principal. I, I, I worked with teachers and parents and families many times with struggles and so forth. And yet in that arena, I never really felt a lot of anxiety. I had education. I was young and stupid. That helps always. But, you know, but, but no, I, 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 I slept well, did my job, continued my education, it was going well. Then I was 29 years old. And our church had a Christian school. I worked in the school, but I attended the church. And our pastor left. And the deacons knocked on my door late one night. I'll never forget it. They had had a meeting. After the meeting, they came over and knocked on my door. And that's usually bad news when the deacons come knocking on the door of your house, particularly late at night. And they said, can we talk? And they came in and they said, we believe that God wants you to be the next pastor of our church. And he said, how do you jump from being a school principal, school teacher to being a pastor? And, you know, I can't tell the whole story because we don't have all that time this morning. But I had preached 
from time to time in the absence of the pastor when he was out of town. And I had a young couple Sunday school class that had grown and was the largest class. And so a lot of the young families had heard me teach every week. And that was kind of the connection. But I had never gone to seminary. <laughs> I had never aspired to be a lead pastor. But in that moment, God began doing something in my life. And within two weeks, I was installed as the new pastor of a 30-year-old church in Palm Beach County, Florida. And I had no idea what I had done. <laughs> I can tell you it was rough. I became pastor on Sunday. On Monday, the business manager came in and he said, well, I need to talk to you about a few things. He said, um, we haven't paid our mortgage in two months. All of our bills are 60 days behind. We have a $25,000 payroll coming up on Friday, and I have $1,700 in the bank. What do I do? We have no line of credit. How do we pay everybody? First thing I did was fire our business manager. <laughs> Literally. The second thing I did was I called a meeting for the next Sunday night at the church because I hadn't been able to cash my paycheck. And I told him, look, I didn't know this when I became pastor, but this is where we are. I had done some calculations, and I looked at the income coming in and going out and made cuts and all kinds of things, but I said, I'm still $40,000 short over the next three months. So I said, the ushers are going to come forward at this time, and they're going to hand out pieces of paper, and I need you to tell me how much you're going to give of that $40,000 in the next two weeks. We handed out the pieces of paper. They brought them in. I waited patiently while the ushers tallied up the amount, and we had $32,000. And I said, that is wonderful. Thank you. Praise the Lord. But I didn't say we needed $32,000. I said we needed $40,000. Please hand the pieces of paper back out again. You know, it helps when you're 29 and an idiot. You do things like that and people give you grace. They did it. And we came back out. $39,800 is what was on those little pieces of paper from that small little church. And I said, I'll put in the last 200 if we can go home. So we went. And you know what? Every dime of that money came in in the next two weeks, and we survived the summer. That was week one. Week two, I got sued, not once, but twice. Twice. For things that happened not under my watch, but now I would have to clean up. And all of a sudden, the weight of the ministry, on top of the fact that, you know, so-and-so comes in and they're, have, they're, you know, they're ready for a divorce. This person comes in, their kid's losing their mind. This person comes in, they're going bankrupt. This person in comes in and they've got cancer and all of a stuff. And I absolutely got totally overwhelmed right away. And one day I came home and I walked in my bedroom and I jumped on my bed. Fun fact, it was a full motion water bed. So I jumped on my bed and I put the covers up around me and my wife said, what is wrong with you? And I said, I think I've made the biggest mistake in my life. I'm over my head. I'm going to be the guy that destroyed the church. It's going to go under and it's going to be my fault. And all the circumstances just weighed, 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 weighed on me. A few minutes later, my wife came back and she had the phone in her hand and she hands it to me. And she said, here, talk to him. 
And she had called my home pastor from Moberly, Missouri, who'd been there for 20 or 30 years, old country guy. More people in my Sunday school class than he had in his whole church. More people in my choir than he had in his whole church. But he said, Dan, you're going to make it. He said, that isn't your church. It's his church. You're just the caretaker. It may fold, but if it folds, it's not going to be because you failed, but because he wanted it to fail. He said, but he's doing something with you too. And he very calmly and carefully walked me through a moment where I was literally shaking with anxiety. Now, I'd like to tell you that was the last episode of anxiety that I've ever had, but I'd be lying to you if that is if I told you that. I've regularly had that. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was wearing heart monitors sometimes. And yeah, I'm the dude that had the heart attack last or two years ago at 59 years of age. I can't tell you I've ever overcome it, but I can tell you this, in the midst of anxiety, you will and can learn things about God and yourself that are essential. And let me tell you this, sometimes the anxiety in my life tells me about where I am spiritually. And it's God's wake-up call in my life during those moments. And I'm thankful for the elders of this church who on occasion have had to put their arms around me and say, Dan, don't let the anxiety talk. Don't let the stress talk. Don't let the pressure talk. Wait on the Lord. Now, I don't know your circumstance. Mine's different than yours. And by the way, Ben and I both want to make this perfectly clear. We understand that the issue of anxiety and mental health is not simply in every situation a spiritual issue. We understand that. And so hear us in that context. But we also want you to understand this. While it may not be a spiritual issue, there are spiritual implications and spiritual strategies and spiritual context, and we are fools to ignore it, and science is foolish to ignore it. Now, there may be times when hormones, trauma, even a head injury, something else, can cause all kinds of things that happen in our body. But God created us holistically and complexly. And in that, there are spiritual strategies, spiritual causes, roots, and triggers, spiritual responses that we can make in the midst of that that help us on our journey to victory. And Scripture deals with it and talks about it and specifically uses the word anxiety as we deal with it. So that's why we're doing the series. Because in our culture today, we want to make science the God. Trust the science, we're told. And scientists are somehow elevated to this level. And I have a respect for science. I got to tell you this, I have a respect for mechanics too. And I have a respect for farmers and for accountants because in their field, they have a knowledge set. 
But I got to tell you, when I need my taxes done, I don't go to Home Depot. Right? And when, when, when I've got a cough and a cold, I don't call up my accountant and say, can you work me in? And we need to understand that in all of these situations, we have a context of faith that is at our very core and will always be part of us. If we're believers, we need to listen to the Word of God. That's why we read this passage this morning. Now, let me also say this. To be really honest with you, and I'm being super transparent with you this morning, I rarely feel anxious when I'm in the pulpit. I, I, I don't. You say, because I, I know you're kind of like saying, wow, you talk about your anxiety, but man, you seem like a pretty cocky dude. Well, first of all, I hate that. I don't want to ever appear to be cocky, but I am confident. You know what I'm confident in? I'm confident in the Word of God, and I'm confident in the Holy Spirit. So when you see what looks like confidence on this platform, I want you to understand that's supernatural. Because until the moment I walk from there to here, and the moment I walk from there to here, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm trusting God in this moment, though, to get me out of the way and let His words ring true in your ears and in your hearts. And I believe God does that because I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, yeah, while you were preaching, the Lord gave this to me and the Lord spoke this to me and I realized this in my own life. And I'm like, wow, that's really amazing because I had no clue that this was going to be the application you'd carry away from that. That's God. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It also gives me the confidence that no matter how bad I mess it up on Sunday morning, God will not be thwarted by what I lack. And that's important to know in all of our lives. God is never limited by what you and I lack. God's will will be performed and will be completed in our life. But I want the Word to be front and center and not myself. And if ever I do feel anxiety... It's almost always after the sermon is over. It's almost always related to concern that in some way I wasn't as clear or as true to the text as I desired to be, or I took some silly rabbit trail or offered an illustration that became a distraction rather than a help so that you might understand the text better. But while I'm teaching, no, I generally don't have anxiety because I trust the Holy Spirit and I trust the Word of God, and I urge you to do the same. I urge you to do the same. Now, this passage we read is important. And quite frankly, many people are very familiar with at least one, maybe two verses, but these verses that they're familiar with in the passage that we read are often taken out of context, and we put them on little plaques, and we hang them in our kitchens or our living rooms, or we put them on a t-shirt, or we post them on our social media account. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Love that verse. That's important. But you know, that's not a complete sentence. There's context to that verse, and we're going to look at it, that far goes beyond the reassurance of that just that little phrase. And when we understand the context, it'll take that, 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 that 10% of what we understand and expand it dramatically and help us immensely. You know, there's another part of that verse. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's a great verse. Posters are made of that. But I want you to understand, there's a context to that verse, and it immediately follows our battle with anxiety. Part of Satan's strategy to get you in an edible position is to make you anxious. And anxiety often is the result of pride. We're going to look at that this morning. 
We've got to look at something deeper than just the nugget that science has eked out for us and labeled us with why you have anxiety. There's so much more to that, and so much of it has spiritual implications, both in its cause and in its effect. And that's where I want us to look this morning. So let's real quickly look at some, and I hate this word, but it's a word I'm going to use for it, some triggers, all right? Some, Some things that set it off. And let's look at it from a biblical point of view, because you and I know there are things that set anxiety off. It could be a trauma. It could be, it, it, it could be, it could be a broken relationship. It, it, it could be stress. I mean, all these things. We, we're aware of those. But you know, the Scripture is not ignorant of them. The Scripture deals with those. You know, if, if, for instance, Matthew chapter 6, almost the whole chapter is about anxiety, because a fear of unmet needs is a trigger for a lot of people. You know, we, we, we keep thinking, if I have enough, then I'm not going to be anxious. If I had more money, I won't be anxious. If I had a bigger house, I won't be anxious. If I didn't have a car payment, I'd be more, I wouldn't be as anxious. If my kids were raised, I wouldn't be as anxious. And we keep saying, these unmet needs, these unfulfilled visions, these things that are in my life that feel like they're missing. And I ask you this, why do you feel like they're missing? Are they missing because they're really missing? Or are they missing because somebody told you they're missing? Because a lot of us spend a lot of time and a lot of energy searching for those empty, filling things, uh, for the emptiness in our lives that we really don't need, that really aren't essential. Matthew 6 goes back and he says, you know, a lot of you are worrying about where you're going to sleep, where you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all those things. These unmet needs cause you anxiety and you worry about things that God's got. God's got. And here's the reality. Sometimes getting all the things that we think we need doesn't take away our anxiety. It causes more anxiety. How many of you have ever made the mistake that I made back in my 30s? You decided to buy a boat. Anybody else ever do that? Oh, yes. I lived in Florida, Palm Beach County. There are two things you do in Palm Beach County. You golf. No, I don't. You boat. Wished I hadn't. But I was in my 30s. Everybody else had a boat. I should have a boat. Everybody lives. You know, why shouldn't the pastor have a boat, right? And so I, 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 I had a pastor friend who was on my staff, and, and he and I were talking one day, and he, he, I don't have a boat. You don't have a boat? We should have a boat. So we said, here's an idea. We're both poor. Let's buy a boat together. If there's anything stupider than buying a boat, it's buying a boat with someone, because now, not only do you have to worry about the boat, but you got to worry about the other person worrying about you because you have the boat when he doesn't have the boat or he wants the boat when you don't have it. And it just gets, it becomes a thing. And the other thing is, when are pastors supposed to use a boat? When do you use your boat? You use it on Saturdays and Sundays. Pastors don't do that. Saturdays we're getting ready for Sunday, and Sunday we're a little occupied. It doesn't work for us. And if you use it on Thursday, you know what everybody else says. Must be nice to be a pastor. Look at him. He's on a boat on Thursday. That's why a lot of pastors name their boats visitation. Where's the pastor? Oh, he's out on visitation. But I got a boat. It was a little bass ski boat. It was a cute little boat. It was nice. I like to fish. We lived near Lake Okeechobee. During that time, Lake Okeechobee was the bass capital of the planet. If you you didn't get an eight-pound bass, you threw it back in. I mean, that's the way the bass fishing was in those days. And and I'm so excited. I'm going to go bass fishing. And my friend, he liked to ski. He's going to go skiing. We bought that boat. He couldn't keep it in his neighborhood. I lived out in the country 
which is relative in Florida. But anyway, I, I, I could have a boat in my yard. So I got to park the boat, yes. So we parked the boat in there, and then all of a sudden I realized, well, that's under a tree. That's not a good place. So I moved the boat. And then I realized, well, there's a tree over there, and if it were to fall, it'd land on the boat. So I moved the boat again. Then I realized, well, it's out in the open in Florida. It rains about 364 days out of the year. It's not good to have it in the weather. I need to buy a tarp. So I told my friend, we've got to buy a tarp to cover it up. Well, they cost like 200 bucks. Well, that's a lot of money in those days for pastors or whatever, but he only had to pay half of it, and I paid half of it, so we got the tarp. And then I realized that every time it got windy, the tarp would blow off. And I'd have to be out in the rain putting the tarp back on. I mean, it just went on. Oh, and then we realized we need insurance for the boat. And, and not only that, our vehicles wouldn't pull the boat because we hadn't thought about that. So we're having to make deals with people. If I borrow your truck to take the boat, then later on, yeah, you can use the boat if you'll take it. I mean, we had to cut all these kinds of deals with it. And then all of a sudden we realized that my kids thought it was a playhouse. My kids would be out there just playing in. They'd set up house. They had chairs. I mean, they had the whole thing. I'd be out there, and there are my kids, tarp on the ground. They're out there just playing in the boat. And every time I'd get ready to go out on the boat, then somebody calls and say, hey, pastor, we need you. And I couldn't go out on the boat. I took that boat out three times. First time I took Lake Okeechobee to go bass fishing, it rained for 10 hours straight. I didn't catch a minnow, let alone a bass. The second time I took it in the intercoastal waterway, and I'm going down the intercoastal water. I didn't realize they had speed limits. I'm looking at this beautiful house to my left. You know that house. It's called Mar-a-Lago. I remember it well because that's where I found out you can get a speeding ticket in a boat. So I get my speeding ticket. I'm on my way back. I'm driving really, really slow, really, really carefully. I hear something go kerchunk. Did you know that propellers hit rocks and that's not a good thing? <laughs> Did you know that propellers are really, really expensive? And then we sold the boat and I was very happy. The end. <laughs> I thought if I could just have a boat, I would have arrived. It would be so cool. And there are so many things that we think if we could just have them, if I could just get my college degree finished, if I could just write my first book, if I just owned my own house, if I just had this car, if I just went to this place on vacation, then, then, then I'd be satisfied to be happy and we get it and then we're anxious. Oh, I don't know if I've got enough money to pay for this. Uh, what am I going to do if I get laid off? Oh man, what am I going to, I've got to have a garage. My garage is, you know, I'd be able to put my car in. And we start worrying about all the details of the things that we worked so hard to get because we thought they'd fulfill us. And the bottom line is this, these things keep triggering us into a deeper level of anxiety. Another thing that happens is a fear of the future. Matthew 10, 19. Here Jesus is saying to the apostles, understand this, when they deliver you over, what does that mean? He goes, when you're put in prison, when you're being, when you're getting persecuted, when things are not going well in your life, what are you supposed to do? He says, do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And you know what God is literally saying there? Is if you look to the future and you worry about it and you don't know how you're going to survive it, relax. Because in that moment, God will give you what you need. But you do not need at this moment to be worrying about what you'll need then. Live in this moment trusting God. Live in that moment trusting God. God will be here now and he'll be there then. 
Another trigger is, is a fear of how people are going to perceive you. And, 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 and am I making people happy? Am I making people satisfied? Or do they like me? And, oh, this drives me nuts. It's one of the things about pastoring that, that is a constant concern. You know, and, and I'll just be honest with you. It causes great, you know, when you all decide to leave this church and go, you know, the church down the street, for you all, that's like shifting from Target to Walmart. For a pastor, it feels like a divorce. Not lying to you, and I'm not trying to get your sympathy, but I want you to understand, we care about you, we invest in you, we sacrifice, you know, sometimes time and, and energy and, and so forth. We pray for you, we cry, we love you. We're worried about you. We feel responsible. The Bible tells us we'll give account for the souls of those in our churches. Elders have a huge responsibility in that role. So when you just like get up and, you know, or even if you, you know, you get a transfer and you move away and you're like, see you, pastor. Thanks for the, you know, the last 10 years we've known each other. And we're like, you know, it hurts. And that sometimes turns into, well, I don't want to be unpopular. I don't want people not to like me. I don't want people to, I don't want people to think I preach too long. Sorry. But that's the reality. <laughs> This was Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10. Mary and, Mar- you know, Mary and Martha, they're, they're working back and forth, and, 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 and Martha, she's running around, she's wanting to cook dinner, and, she's, and, she, and she gets frustrated with everybody around her. Why am I the only one cooking the chicken? Why am I the only one setting the table? Why am I the only one doing this? And Jesus looks, Martha, would you quit worrying? I'm cool. I'm happy. And, and let me just be really honest with you at this moment. Mary's doing better than you are. Because she's chosen the better thing here. She's sitting at my feet and she's listening. I didn't come here for dinner. I came here for fellowship. But what we do is, we, well, I want him to be happy. I want him to be full. I want him to be satisfied. I want him to like me. I want him, and we worry all this stuff and it causes tension and anxiety. There are other factors that are related to anxiety we see in Scripture. Anxiety thrives in uncertainty. And that's why so many people right now are feeling anxious because we, you know, we live with a lot of clarity, but we live with a lot of uncertainty. And in our nation right now, financially, politically, look at China, look at all these things, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And what does that create in us? Many times it breeds all kinds of anxiety. And yet, what was it the scripture says? Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Because the Bible says, your heavenly Father clothes the birds, gives the animals places to sleep, takes care of the flowers. He'll take care of you. Another thing that happens is, you know, in honesty, anxiety brings anxiety, breeds anxiety. The more anxious we get, the more anxious we get. And, and it, over and over and over. That's why, you know, when Jesus was reprimanding Martha, remember what he said to her? You're anxious about many things. Many things. Well, she's only cooking dinner. Oh, no. The anxiety was far deeper than that. She wanted Jesus to be pleased. She wanted Jesus to be liked. She wanted to have the right kind of food. She wanted to make sure it was there on the right time. She wanted to make sure that it was the right portion. She wanted to make sure. She, all these little details started unfolding, causing more and more. Have you ever whipped yourself into a frenzy over the smallest little? That's why holidays are so anxiety-ridden for a lot of people. Because you're trying to juggle all this stuff. Travel, presence, family, uncomfortable relationships, food, church services, work. All these things. And then all of a sudden one ball drops. And you feel like you've lost control. Anxiety breeds anxiety. And then here's the other thing that is so dangerous and so real. 
Anxiety usually partners with numbing and destructive behaviors. It's both a cause and effect. Anxiety often partners with numbing and destructive behaviors. When you look at Luke chapter 21, verse 34, it says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. What is that? Anxiety. With dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, like an addiction. So beware of destructive distractions that both cause and are fed by anxiety. Alcohol, drugs, pot, social media, TikTok, YouTube viewing, gaming, shopping, eating, porn, cable news. Anything that you turn to automatically when you're stressed or bored or tense or anxious and which leaves you feeling numb, more tense, out of control, more anxious, guilty, frustrated, or even angry. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? You hearing from him? Because he'll point out to you your area. He sure will. So today, in the time that remains, very quickly, I'm going to walk you through this passage of Scripture. And I'd like for you to meditate on it in the week to come. Because this passage is more than cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. It's far more than that. So let me give you five principles really quick. Here's number one. Anxiety, like many sins, has its root in pride, control, and selfishness. Now let's go back to verse 5, if we could. Look what it says. Likewise, that's a break. That's a break in the sentence in the, in the uh, Greek. You are who you are younger, all right? Because anxiety often starts when we're younger. You be subject to your elders. Listen to those who are further down the road to you. It'll be a help to you. Then look what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, young and old, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. There are three words, or one word used three times in those two verses. What God repeats, he's trying to catch our attention. That's one of the rules of hermeneutics, okay? And context is everything when you're studying Scripture. So remember, we're reading these verses, then we're going to get to cast all your care. And what he's saying, humble, humble, humble. Now, why do you tell somebody they need to be humble? Because they're proud, proud, proud. You don't say humble, humble, humble to somebody who's already humble, 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 do you? You say humble, humble, humble to somebody who's struggling with pride, pride, pride. And these are the words that Peter is giving in wisdom under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, if you want victory over anxiety, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to listen up. You're going to pay attention. The emphasis on humility that is part of this verse is a key to overcoming anxiety. Those who care too much what others think about themselves need to listen. 
those who worry about things, those who spend too much time comparing themselves with others, those who feel not enough, not pretty enough, not rich enough, not powerful enough, not successful enough, not noticed enough, those who are entitled, those who have addictions, those who feel out of control, those who lack direction or certainty, those who are captured by irrational fears, those who lack information or knowledge, God is saying, admit you're a mess. Humble yourself. You don't have all the answers. You don't have all the solutions. You don't have it all together. And quite frankly, you're not all that. But God is. That's the good news. God is. And so he's saying, begin with a posture of humility. And folks, we got to be aware of the conceit. So the key word there is conceit. And we need to admit it's the original sin. It's a sin that caused all of this stuff to come unwound in the first place. And none of us are immune from it. Here's the second thing. Humility helps us to overcome anxiety because we turn the circumstances over to God. Now, finally, we're in the verse that we all focus on. What does it say? Casting all your anxieties, all your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. But I want you to notice something, all right? Go back to verse 7 and then go back to the last word in verse 8. Unless you're using an NIV or an RSV because they get this wrong. But if you're using the ESV, which is the version that we use most frequently here, you'll see what? A comma, not a period. This is not an independent thought. This is associated with the first verses in this phrase, in this context. He's saying, be humble, be humble, be humble, and cast all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, There's a connection between humility and giving up to the Lord. There's a connection here between conceit and casting. You will never cast what you need to cast until you've admitted that you cannot solve your own problems in your own strength and in your own self-sufficiency. We need God. And we have to be empty. When will an alcoholic get uh, get, get hope for his trouble? When he hits what? Rock bottom. We all know that. It's common knowledge. When will we get help for anxiety? When we admit, I can't cure it myself. Now, alcoholics try all kinds of tricks, don't they? I'm going to reduce it. I'm going to do this. I'm only going to drink after this hour. I'm only going to drink on Saturdays. They have all these bargaining things, and we do too. Well, I'll, I'll give everything to the Lord after I've done this, after I've achieved that, after I've gained that. So we do all these bargaining things, but the bottom line is we won't get help until we're empty enough to say to God, i got to have you. And at that moment, God can give us healing. What is the solution? Trusting God's sovereignty, patience, being willing to accept his authority over us, watching out for the rebellion that lives in most of our hearts. 
Getting rid of the idols that we erect that are more important to us than obedience to God. Because got to tell you, we're all little idol-making factories. There are all kinds of things that we want to put up ahead of God. When we think of others before we think of ourselves, we're starting to capture humility. And how do we cast our anxieties on him? We assign them to him. We trust them to him. We accept how he handles things, even if it isn't what we wanted. We rest in his love and not in our fears. Why can we do that? What does the scripture say? Why can we trust him? Because he cares for us. Because Why does a child run to their mother when they're hurt? Because they know if nobody loves me, mama does. And God wants us to get that message. Why should we run to God when we're hurt and confused and we're anxious? Because nobody loves us like God loves us. Not even your mama. Nobody loves you like God loves you. So humility helps us to overcome the anxiety because what we do is we literally, viscerally, take those fears, those concerns, those worries, those cares, those anxieties, and we say, I don't want to carry these anymore. I'm going to trust God with them, and here's the key, and with the outcomes, with the consequences. The moment, the greatest moment of brokenness I ever had, and I do not believe I could have ever been a pastor, and this happened about two years before I was, I was 27 when this happened, so two years before I became a pastor. I was, I was living with a lot of anger over things that had happened in my life related to the loss of my father, to our fertility issues, and I was living with a lot of anger. God, you didn't keep your end of the deal. I had a transactional view of God. If I did these good things, God would do good things back to me, and the good things that he did back to me were the things I wanted but not necessarily needed. And I, in brokenness one night, said to God, I'm giving it to you, every bit of it. If you want me to be a pauper, I'll be a pauper, but I'm not turning my back on you. Want my mom to die of cancer? Here she is. I'm not turning my back on you. Having children? It's been very important to me. Handing it to you. If I'm childless all the days of my life, I'm not walking back. And I literally examined my heart and my life looking for everything that I was putting on a pedestal. And in my heart, I gave them over to Christ. And at that moment, I understood sovereignty for the first time in my life. Everything was his. And at that moment, I understood freedom for the first time in my life. Everything was his but you got to be willing to surrender. And that's a scary thing. A scary thing. But that's what sovereignty is all about. Number three, pride and anxiety are tools that Satan uses to destroy us. Pride and anxiety are tools that Satan uses to destroy us. Remember, context is everything. That chapter, that book, that letter, that thought does not end with he cares for us. There's another very, very important thought in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
There's a warning there. Pride and anxiety are the tools that God will use to dis- or that Satan will use to destroy us. Remember context. Where do we start off? When he said, "Be humble." And part of humility is saying, "I need help. I got to trust God. I can't win this battle. What battle? The battle we see in verse eight. The fact that Satan is actively walking about, planning for our destruction." Do you see the context now? Is it coming alive to you? It's it's not just one-dimensional. This is overall God's overarching plan. And he's saying this, don't get cocky. You don't have all the answers and you're not going to ever have everything you think you need. It doesn't exist. So humble yourself and say, I can't do it all. I can't solve all the problems. I'm concerned about the future, but I know this. I trust God and I'm going to be okay with his outcomes in my life. Why is all that important? Because you have an adversary that's bigger than poverty. It's bigger than pain. It's bigger than disappointment. It's bigger than sleepless nights. It's bigger than hand tremors. It's a devil that wants to kill you and destroy you and bind you. That's your enemy right there. Not uncertainty, not having somebody not like you today, not even cancer. The enemy is Satan. And he's subtle. He's calculating. And he's patient. And he's just walking around. Looking for someone. Someone. Ah, that person's isolating. That person... They're disillusioned right now. Oh, that person, (laughs) they committed some sins and now they are ashamed. Oh, that person over there, they're paralyzed with fear. Easy pickings. That's Satan's strategy. He's looking for us in our vulnerable moments. So we have to be aware of it. Something to take seriously. Don't be flippant or dismissive. Why? Because he said, be sober-minded. This isn't a joke. Then he says, be watchful. You remember what, what, what Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul said? He said, walk circumspectly. Some of you guys go hunting. <laughs> Maybe you're not as bad as I am, but all of us understand you're walking through the woods. And there's timber rattlers and copperheads around here. And so what do I do? Well, first of all, I wear boots and long pants. And when I'm walking, I'm walking circumspectly, right? So when you talk about circumference, it's all around. So I'm looking around in a circle. Why? Because I don't want to step on a snake. I don't want to get bit. So what should we be doing if we're sober-minded, if we're being careful, and if we're watching? Well, Paul said this, be circumspect. Look around. See Satan for where he is. Because you know the lion doesn't just walk across and just like grab you by the neck. No, he crouches in the weeds. He gets behind the bush. He sits behind the tree. And then he comes at the last minute when you're not paying attention. And that's, that's his strategy. So remember that Satan is trying to destroy you. These are all, the, the devil prowls, he roars, he tracks, he devours. These are all aggressive actions and we have to take our circumstances this life, 
very seriously. There's something at stake. What is it? Our souls. We often seem to care so much less about the condition of our souls than God does. You ever think about that? We care so much less than God does. And it doesn't make sense. He literally sacrificed his son for our souls, and many of us don't even really think about our soul. We don't even protect it. We don't even consider it. We don't confess our sins. When's the last time you stopped? I, the Holy Spirit convicted me about this this week. and Oh, man, this was not a fun exercise. But I realized, you know, I, always, I, I, I do the whole, Lord, forgive me where I failed you. I know I don't think that, it, that's like saying to somebody, well, forgive me if I've offended you. Does that ever feel good when somebody, you know, you, somebody's really ticked you off about something? And, and, and they look at you and say, oh, well, if I've offended you anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And take off. I, I got to tell you, I'm like, wait, 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 or keep walking because this ain't over. <laughs> you know, that's not good enough for me. Something, so I, I literally took some time and I said, God, I need you to start bringing up the stuff that I need to confess that I'm dealing with. Holy cow, I needed to clear my whole day. That's soul care. And sometimes we need to stop. Understand, our soul is pretty sacred because it costs God his son. So we got to be really, really careful. Number four, resisting these tools, pride and anxiety, that's what Satan uses, is resisting the enemy. So we have conceit, we have casting, we've got confronting, now we've got continuing, okay? Resisting. So notice the words in verse 9. If you circle words, I would urge you to do this because these are ongoing. These are in linear sense. Resist. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Suffering. That's not a passive term. So look at those. These are power words. Resist, firm, knowing, suffering. These are words of continuation. You've got to be willing to endure. You've got to be willing to resist. You've got to stand firm in your position. You've got to know these things and count on these things. And our health, whether it's physical or spiritual or mental or emotional or relational, it is a matter of God's design for us. And the reason God wants us to be healthy in terms of of our physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, and relational health is because we need these tools to what? Resist the devil. To resist Satan. You will not resist Satan when you're physically undisciplined and weak. You will be less likely to resist Satan when you're spiritually cold and carnal. You will not resist Satan when you're mentally dull and ignorant. You will not resist Satan when you're emotionally distracted and broken. And you will not resist Satan when you're relationally at conflict with others and dysfunctional in your relationships. That's why all of these areas are health areas. They're important to God because we are at war with Satan. And these are crucial. And Satan often uses our health against us in his battle to capture our souls and to limit our joy. And anxiety is the enemy of joy. So it's really, really crucial that we're healthy spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, intellectually healthy. Then the last thing, our victory over the cares and concerns of life 
is available to those who are in Christ. And that, folks, is completion. Notice what the next set of power words is in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, first of all, I want you to look at that, a little while. It's temporary, folks. It's temporary. The worst day you're having, temporary. You're going to suffer a little while. Don't deny it, but it's temporary. What happens? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will personally, get that, will personally himself, then look at these power words, circle them, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now those are some power words right there. Listen to them again. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. And that's what God has for you. He does not want you to live anxiety-ridden. He does not want you to live the broken, defeated, depressed life. He does not want you to live under your circumstances. He's saying these days, these times, these moments, these feelings are temporary. But there's coming a day for those who are in Christ when Christ himself will bring his power into your life and give you everlasting victory and everything you've ever needed. Woo! That's power. And that's hope. Some of you are going through it right now. I know your stories. I'm seeing it as I'm preaching because I can see your faces. And sometimes I just, just want to stop what I'm doing and run out there and just give you a hug for a moment because I know what you're going through and my heart breaks. Some of you are engaged in War. Some of you, Satan has his lion with his teeth around the back of your neck and he's shaking you right now. Some of you are like I was. <laughs> Just looking to get back in bed and crawl, pull the covers up to your neck. And I'm here to tell you, take the phone, okay? Take the phone. You'll get through it. God loves you. He will establish you. Oh, you're suffering, not denying that. You're in the pits right now. Got it, understood. But I want you to understand, hope comes in the morning. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Don't give up. Don't quit. But this country's a mess. Yes, it is. But my kingdom is eternal. But I'm poor and I can't pay my bills. But I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, yeah, but I just feel sad on the t- all the time. But I am joy unspeakable and full of glory. Listen for the Holy Spirit. Pick up the phone. Talk to your heavenly Father. That's not trite. That's not religiosity unless, unless you don't have a relationship with Christ. Then it is. It's just words. And by the way, you should be afraid. And yes, you should be discouraged. And yes, you ought to be in your bed with your sheets pulled up to your neck, quivering in fear. Because the adversary, the adversary is at your door. 
And if you don't have Christ, all these promises, all this hope, it's not yours. Not yours. You can keep looking for it in money and boats. You can be looking for it in all those other places. But I'm here to tell you, there's but one. And you've got to humble yourself before Him. It doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect. It means you're going to suffer still. But there's joy in the morning. So what do we do? We see anxiety as a condition and a consequence. It's not your identity. Do not do this ever again. Do not say, I have anxiety. Don't say it. Say, I'm experiencing anxiety. But God has you. And you have God. And anxiety has no room. So you may be experiencing it, but don't tattoo it on your forehead. Don't put it on your permanent chart. You'll have it and I have it. I have it. I got to tell you. I wish I could tell you I didn't. I told, I, told uh, I think it was my mom or my wife yesterday. I was talking to somebody about this and I said, man, I hope God doesn't burn the church down while I'm in it tomorrow because the biggest hypocrite on the planet is going to preach on anxiety. But I got to tell you, I know the solution. I do know the solution. And when I live in the solution, it's better. It's better. Here's the second thing. Don't deny the spiritual implications of the battle with anxiety. This is for keeps, and Satan, Satan wants you. Number three, remember that you're not alone. You're not alone. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why can you do that? Because he cares for you. Everybody else may abandon you someday, but not the one who cares for you. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you've never humbled yourself and given yourself to Him, if you've never trusted Him as Savior, here's what I want you to do. Before you leave and get in your car, I want to introduce you to Christ. I'll be standing out there. Come see me. Our pastors, our elders will be out there. You'll see people with a red lanyard that says, may I pray for you on the card. Go talk to them. Talk to somebody at the front counter and say, I need somebody to pray with me. There's a little prayer room over here. We'll go so you don't have, if you need privacy, we'll give you privacy. We'll show you from the Bible. Not asking to become a member of the church. Don't bring your checkbook and don't bring a pen. It's not necessary. We're going to talk to you about what God has done for you and invite you to trust him as your Lord, as your Lord and Savior. But that's the first step to healing. And it's the first step to curing anxiety. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you need to pray, the altar's open. But let's listen to the Holy Spirit as we close. Let's stand. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for all the verses around it. Help us to live it. Help us to be transformed by your truth. To live above our circumstances. And Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That indeed you care for us. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.